Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is the future of cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in the automotive industry and its supporting ecosystem and help them move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Yes, indeed. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to help make the world a better place, it's time to run or drive with the Game Changers. And this is where the best run. Let's take a look at the buzz on the street today, literally on the street. Let's see. We have a quote here from an August 2015 article entitled, High Tech Cars Bring Detroit and Silicon Valley Face-to-Face in the Associated Press. Let me read a little bit from the quote, and that will set us up. The convergence of cars and computers. Computers is blurring the traditional geographical boundaries of both industries. Silicon Valley is dotted with research labs opened by automakers and suppliers who are racing to develop high-tech infotainment systems and autonomous cars. Tech companies who are looking to grow and sensing an industry ripe for disruption are heading to Detroit to better understand the auto industry and get their software embedded into cars. So there you have it. What are we talking about today? The auto industry is at a major crossroads. What a fitting word, crossroads, for a show about cars. There you go. Silicon Valley dominates in the use of consumer data. We know that. But the auto industry is still making cars, and they have the data. Creating new consumer and employee experiences is where automotive tech is headed today, and that's where it should be headed. So what's the way forward for new Silicon Valley automotive and traditional Detroit, and we're even going to reach over across the ocean, Stuttgart Auto Manufacturing? Do suppliers get bought Or do they dominate the new space of mobility? That's what it's all about. We have a panel of three experts who are going to share their insights, and we're going to find out where this is all headed. So welcome again. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Happy to be here. One of our long-running series called The Future of Cars with Game Changers. Let me tell you who my three panelists are. I'll try to pronounce their names absolutely perfectly. I rehearsed this first up. We're going to welcome Ashok, Ashok, Shiv. Vanand, I think it's Shivanand, that's it, I've got it, Paul Eichenberg and Ellen Sasson. Ashok is with a company called Integral, Paul Eichenberg is with his own strategic consulting company under his own name, and Ellen Sasson, of course, is with SAP. So, Ashok has sent us a wonderful quote from Richard Feynman. Let me give you a little background. Richard Phillips Feynman, 1918 to 1988, was an American theoretical physicist. He received the 1965 Nobel Prize in Physics, along with Julian Schwinger and Shirinchiro Tomonaga, and he became one of the best-known scientists in the world. And his pictorial representation schemes are actually known as Feynman diagrams, F-E-Y-N-M-A-N. Here's the quote. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. Ashok, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks, Bonnie. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you for asking. I love the quote. I actually got a hold of the book, The Story of Mr. Feynman. I don't remember if it was his biography or autobiography a couple of years ago. He was a very interesting character, and we haven't had a quote from him in years. So, Ashok, tell me how this quote applies to our topic, please. I think... Um I think it primarily applies because this is an industry that has had a lot of history over a hundred years, so a lot of confidence in kind of staying power and being able to cater to a customer need. 
to your point or from the quote from the last quote, the industry is at a crossroads where computers and cars are coming together. And um, I think as the auto industry, for the first time, we're making software for our consumers, not just to run our business operations. And so we need to really check our instincts and make sure that what we think makes sense also makes sense for our customers because um, we can get dragged down a lot of rabbit holes uh, in the industry if, if we kind of stick to our path because of, of hubris and our instincts. And um, we need to make sure that, that our customers believe what we believe as well. And if they don't, then we need to change our beliefs because they're not going to change theirs. Very interesting. Ashok, do you think that automotive are fooling themselves? I'm using automotive as a collective pronoun, if you don't mind. Or do you think that it's possible that the, the people in Silicon Valley, who is who is the easiest person to fool in this case? It's not the customer. So is it this, which side of the crossroads, the automotive side or the, the software side? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat here and choose a third option. And I'd say <laughs> it's the person... It, amongst the two, it's the person who waits the longest to check if they're on the right track. And historically, Silicon Valley has had better experience with that. And to put that into context, you know, if you're putting an app out there or if you're putting new software out there every week or every couple of weeks, like Facebook does on your mobile phone, mm-hmm. um, you're able to gut check your instincts every two weeks. Um, the more traditional industries are more used to putting an app out every six months or every 18 months. And so that's 18 months of fooling yourself before the reality check. So I think um, really it's whoever, whoever is checking more often is less likely to fool themselves. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you very, very much. That's why we use opening quotes that are not specifically on the topic because we want to hear your creative way of thinking and linking the two together. Ashok, very happy to have you on the show. And in a few minutes, I'll be coming back to you and asking you to tell us where you are, what you love to drink that powers you, and what you and your company are all about. So again, thank you so much for joining us. I'm moving around the table slightly to our second panelist, Paul Eichenberg, the CEO of Paul Eichenberg Strategic Consulting. And Paul has pulled up a quote from Theodore Roosevelt, fondly known in the U.S. as Teddy. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, let's see, 1858 to 1919, way before any of this we were talking about was a reality. American statesman, sportsman, interestingly, that came first in his bio, Paul. Statesman and sportsman, conservationist and writer who happened to serve as the 26th president of the U.S. from 1901 to 09. He was previously the 25th VP from 19. And the 33rd governor of New York from 1899 to 1900. And this is probably a little known fact. Paul, if you ask people who the faces on Mount Rushmore are, Teddy Roosevelt is likely to be the one people don't remember. But he is actually considered one of the best five presidents in the history of the U.S. The other, I won't quiz you, the other three are George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln, who tremendously predated uh, Teddy Roosevelt. So that's an interesting factoid. So here's the quote. It is hard to fail, but it is worse never to have tried to succeed. Paul Eichenberg, welcome. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. I love the quote. Talk to me. How does it relate to our topic today? Well, I think our industry is going through a tremendous uh, technology disruption, whether it's autonomous vehicles, vehicle electrification, connectivity, uh, ride sharing. And what I would say is you see from traditional automotive uh, OEMs and traditional automotive suppliers uh, sort of this reluctance 
uh, at times um, uh, to really face the change that's taken place. So uh, as I as I think about this topic, I think um, that really there are going to be uh, a great amount of uncertainty going forward uh, in this market, um, but the bold will win, and uh, it's really facing um, in facing uh, you know this bold time uh, in being uh, a little less risk adverse, but being mm-hmm. bold um, is when. Uh, these companies will succeed going forward. Thank you very much. Um, in terms of failing, do you think there's a, a, a period of time where this is all going to be in the balance, kind of a trial and error, Paul, where yes. automotive companies, uh, yeah, and, and what I, I didn't mention yet to our listeners is that we've titled this episode, now it's time for me to say, is Make Versus Buy automotive software development, where do the auto manufacturers sit on that? I don't know if it's a paradigm shift or if it's a continuum, perhaps. I make cars. No, I make software. No, I make cars and software. Any any clues as to where the major auto manufacturers stand on that decision yet, Paul? Can you give us a well, peek I into think, that? Yeah. yeah, so I think if you look at uh, OEMs like Tesla, if you look at OEMs like GM with Super Cruise, these are organizations that are focused um, in making. Uh, these are becoming software companies. Uh, as a matter of fact, even if you look at uh, some of the headlines from the Geneva Auto Show, uh, you'll see headlines of uh, OEMs like uh, uh, VW coming out and saying, hey, we're a software-driven uh, car company. So I think what you're starting to see is really an evolution that's beginning um, to take place in the automotive industry where OEMs, where suppliers are starting to say, the future of our industry is software. We need to embrace it. Now, the biggest challenge is, is how do you attract the talent um, to mm-hmm. these, you know, these automotive suppliers to be able to fulfill um, that promise or that hope? Thank you very much. Very interesting. And, and thanks for uh, indulging my question. I was wondering because that's what we're really talking about today. Thank you, Paul, and welcome. And as I told Ashok a moment ago, we'll be circling around the table to you again shortly to find out more about what you do and uh, your approach to the industry. So thank you for joining us. Ellen Sesson has been on so many times. We're always happy to have you back. Ellen is an automotive industry advisor at SAP. And Ellen, Ellen knows that I love song lyrics in our opening quotes, so she has picked up some lyrics from a David Bowie song called Changes. I actually found it on YouTube last night, Ellen, and I thought maybe I could sing it, but there's no way. So I'm just going to say the quote, uh, David Bowie, in case anybody has been literally under a rock for the past, I don't know how many decades, David Robert Jones was his full name, passed away very untimely in 2016. He was born in 47. Known professionally as David Bowie, was an English singer, songwriter, actor, considered one of the most influential musicians of the 20th century because of his innovative work, his reinvention, talking about reinvention uh, today about automotive, he had his reinvention and visual presentation, his music and stage craft, and he certainly was interesting on stage, having a significant impact on popular music. His record sales estimated 140 million albums worldwide, made him one of the world's best-selling musical artists. He was awarded 10 platinum albums in the UK, 11 gold, 8 silver. He released 11 number one albums. And in the US, he got 5 platinum and 9 gold.
old, and he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame back in 1996. Here's the quote. changes turn and face the strange. changes don't tell them to grow up and out of it. Ellen, welcome back. How have you been? Good, Bonnie. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. I, lo- I love the quote, and I actually marked the YouTube video, Ellen, at 1 minute and 56 seconds is when he says this. So uh, I was very intrigued, and I looked, and I said, no, there's no way I'm going to do anything mu- musical or lyrical with that one. So, Ellen, ch changes. Tell me, what are we talking about here? Well, the changes part is easy, I think. That's, that's everything all the time changing. But what got me is strange the word strange, and his comment, don't tell them to grow up and out of it, really is, to me, a huge statement about startup and, and how startup really drives the world, right? And that's what changes everything. He has another song, Sidebar, called Life on Mars. I was listening to him most, you know, an hour or two yesterday. Really, I think, channeling what Elon Musk ultimately went on to do and invest in and care about. So I think, I think the artists lead the way generally, but that song to me speaks to just the, the massive change and how the openness to what I'll call strangeness or startup is what fuels this, this industry now, a, a mixture of old and new. Ellen, where do you think this energy is coming from, this mix of old and new, this embracing, looking forward and saying, okay, we're manufacturers, we're OEMs, we know what we're doing, we think we're going to be able to be part of the autonomous car era, we're not quite sure, but now we got to go into software and let's take that leap of faith, let's change, let's not grow out of it. Do you think this comes from senior management? Do you think it comes from an influx of, of millennials? I use that word advisedly and, and Paul mentioned, uh, well, this goes back to something that Paul just said uh, in terms of attracting the talent. Ellen, where is the impetus coming for for automotive to even say, uh-uh, we're not going to let Silicon Valley do all of the software reinvention. We're going to do it ourselves. Where is this energy coming from? To me, and this is a simplification because there, there's also things like robotics and software development, you know, automated software development, but really it's the cell phone. It's the mobile the world that we live in that, that we've seen. You, you know, consumers have demanded that I, I think every single OEM, with the exception of one, one nameplate, have Apple Play and Google Play now. And that was really a consumer-driven movement that, you know, when they get in the car, they want to light up the the display with the same thing their phone lights up with. So to me, that's, that's the real driver is the, the cell phone has um, outdone the car in terms of utility. People live on their cell phones more than anything today. Absolutely. Good point. Thank you very much. We, we talk about the consumerization of everything, right, Ellen? People go to work. They want the same ease of using apps as they have on their phone, on their whatever tablet, whatever mobile devices they're carrying. So it's bleeding over in industries. Very interesting. Thank you so much, Ellen. And thank you for your work putting together this panel, as well as a shout out, of course, to Miranda LeBate at SAP for her hard work putting this together. We appreciate you, Miranda. So let's go around the table to Ashok. Vinan. I think I finally said it right, Ashok. You have to forgive me. And Ashok, we'd love to know a little bit more about you. You're the co-founder and CEO of Integral. First of all, where were you calling from in the world today? Number two, what is your favorite drink that powers you to be you? And third of all, tell us about your company, please, Ashok. Sounds good. So um, I'm calling in from Detroit, Michigan, which is where Integral is based out of. Um, 
What was your second question there, Bonnie? What do you love to drink? I love to drink clarified butter in most things. Uh, Seriously. Primarily coffee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's bulletproof coffee, right? It's That's kind bulletproof. Of, bulletproof coffee is kind of a marketed name for it, but yes. Um, you can put it in tea. Uh, you can add kind of a fatty texture to like a super broth too, but usually that's um, it's in my coffee that I have it in the mornings, and um, it's meant to have a lot of kind of fuel for your brain and a bunch of aggressive sounding marketing. But I personally just like the taste of butter in my coffee. I've always liked the taste of butter on everything. And I remember I when I was very young, my sister made comments, and she said, "Why is Bonnie putting butter?" In her, with her hands on, on everything on her plate. I just love the taste of butter. I've tried to outgrow it, but I don't know. Now, I think chocolate is, is uh, the le- the leading passion, but butter, yes, nothing like good butter. Do you use the grass-fed butter in your coffee, Ashok? I sure do. And uh, more recently, I've kind of switched over to something called ghee. Uh, yep. It's clarified butter, and it's... Um, it's it's kind of gotten kind of it, it tastes like shortbread and coffee combined when you when you have it. Wow! And ghee is spelled for those of you who are curious. G H E E. It's a class of clarified butter that originated in India, commonly used in Middle Eastern cuisine and cuisine of the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia, and traditional medicine and religious rituals. Very very interesting. And it's monounsaturated to the point of three point six seven eight grams. Don't ask me how I know that. Of course, off the top of my head, Ashok. It just these are factoids. I just carry around a little mental suitcase. Yeah, right. So tell me. Now, what do you do and what is Integral all about? Sure thing. So I got together um, a little over a couple of years ago with a few folks here in Detroit um, and uh, started a company called Integral. Um, The reasons for starting were, you know, number one, um, robots are going to be driving us around soon, and um, that's really exciting for us, primarily engineers uh, from, from, you know, the hardcore nerds that we are. Um, and we wanted to really be part of it. But really, if you kind of step aside or kind of take zoom out a little bit from the cool, shiny tech aspect from it, mm-hmm. I think if you think about the way that the, the industry is changing, one of the most amazing things that's going to happen is that there's going to be more democratization of opportunity in our country. If mobility and transportation become more accessible, people are going to find it easier getting to education, getting to employment, getting to healthcare. And uh, if you think about it, that's, you know, being able to get there is a huge divisive factor in our society today. Um, and, and that's really kind of what drives us in terms of making mobility a right. Um, and we combine those kind of items with the fact that um, we have an efficacy for, for, for being able to bring these new things to market really easily, especially when it comes to software. And we know a lot of this mobility industry is going to be powered by software. So as, as practitioners, we felt further responsibility and passion for being able to actually have a monumental impact in this democratization of opportunity. Um, and the third thing was, you know, I moved here from Detroit uh, in 2016. I was supposed to be here for a short-term stint uh, to help open up an office here for a company I worked for at the time and just completely fell in love with Detroit. Um, and what better place to start a mobility startup than in Detroit with, with, all of the, uh, with all of the history here and the instincts that have developed over the last 100 years? 
Thank you very much. Pleasure to have you on. We're honored to have you on, and it's wonderful that you're in Detroit. That's great. And we won't talk about recent news of changes in that industry, in that city, and we'll just leave it at that. Ashok, looking forward to a lot more great information from you during the rest of the show, and welcome again. And let's move around Thank the you. table. To, you're welcome. Paul Eichenberg at Paul Eichenberg Strategic Consulting. Paul, same three questions. Where are you today? What do you love to drink in as much detail as you care to share, as Ashok did? And let's see if I have anything in my mental suitcase for what you're yeah we know how that works and tell us about your decision to create your own strategic consulting company what you do Paul go ahead all right well first of all today I'm here in Southfield Michigan Uh, I'm facilitating a strategic planning uh, activity with a client here today so uh, in in lovely uh, south uh, southeast Michigan Um, as far as my 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 favorite drink. I'm really not a coffee drinker or anything like that, but uh, you asked the question of Ashok uh, as far as, well, what powers him? I think Mm -hmm. what powers me or what I uh, really uh, strive for is a good Bordeaux. I have uh, a dear friend of mine uh, by the name of Xavier who lives in Saint-Emilion, and he's always sending me great uh, Bordeaux uh, from that uh, little community. And there's nothing like at the end of a of a, a hard week or uh, you know feeling a, a big deal or completing a, a client project like sitting down and sharing a, a lovely bottle of uh, Bordeaux and uh, celebrating uh, the accomplishment. So I would say for me that's the drink that really uh, powers me and uh, is is somewhat of a, a motivator for me. Um, as far as uh, my decision to uh, start my own firm, I think it's uh, very simple. Uh, our industry is going through unprecedented change, and the strategic options for companies are really endless. And having the ability and the opportunity to work with uh, organizations to figure out what do they do next? Uh, how do they succeed? What does success look like? How do we transform? Um, you know, who are we as a corporation? These are just fascinating questions mm-hmm. uh, to ask and answer uh, in an industry that I just love. So um, that's, uh, that's why I, I went out uh, on my own, and uh, that's, that's our focus here uh, at Paul Eichenberg Strategic Consulting. Thank you very much, Paul, and we're very much looking forward to what you're going to say in the crystal ball predictions round, as well as what Ashok and Ellen have to say. But from your perspective as your own uh, your own consulting firm, I'll be particularly interested in that. Thank you very much. And Ellen Sasson, again, welcome, welcome, welcome back. Ellen, three questions. Where are you? What do you love to drink? Anything new? You've been on the show so many times. And what's up with you in terms of what your role is and, and what you are doing right now? So I am right now in Troy, Michigan, which is north of Detroit, but I will be in Detroit in a few hours later today. So I feel like I'm part Detroit. I I wish I was in Detroit, but I'm in Troy. That's my first comment. My second is I'm going to pick a drink that I don't drink that often, but I am fascinated by just the, uh, the complexity of this. It's bourbon. And it's called hmm. Bullet Bourbon. And I was having a conversation with the bartender in Detroit at my favorite restaurant called Lady of the House. And he said it's like a three-year process with bourbon. And because, because there's this three-year delay, it's almost like the auto industry. 
uh, other brands buy the liquor and then label it, right, or, or package it or make it something else so that mm-hmm. they can sell it. And then eventually they develop their own distillery. But I just, I just, the complexity and the speed and the lack of speed because you have to wait three years for it to age in the oak barrel. I just thought it was interesting. I mean, it's a lot like wine, but this is more close to home in Kentucky. They make bourbon. Ellen, let let me just add a little bit, if I may. Uh, Of course, in my mental suitcase, you know how that works, as Paul and Ashok know. Bullet, and I'll spell it for everybody, B-U-L-L-E-I-T. So there's an I in the word bullet just between the E and the T. Bullet Bourbon is a brand of Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey produced at the Kirin, K-I-R-I-N Brewing Company, Four Roses Distillery in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, for the Diag. Geo, D-I-A-G-E-O, beverage conglomerate. It is characterized, listen to this, Ellen, by a high rye content for a bourbon and aged at least six years. That's what the official Wikipedia page says. Six years of aging. Alcohol by volume is 45%. It's 90 proof. The color is russet, which is dark brown. It was introduced into the U.S. country of origin in 1999. So what do you think about six years of aging, Ellen? Surprised? Well, my bartender was wrong. I guess you can't trust them. (laughs) (laughs) You got to go back and talk to him. There's also at bullet.com, there's also something called uh, Bullet Bullet Bourbon is inspired by the whiskey pioneered by Augustus Bullet. Oh, there's a person, B-U-L-L-E-I-T, over 150 years ago. It comes from its unique blend of rye, corn, and barley malt, along with special strains of yeast and pure Kentucky limestone filtered water. Now I know why you said it's so common. Complex, absolutely complex. Sounds wonderful. Maybe one day I'll develop a taste for bourbon. And now, Ellen, let's get get us back on track. What do you do these days? So SAP, you know, I, I'm still in the same role, very much focused on SAP and our automotive industry base, which has extended into high tech, right, because of mobility. But we also have changed a bit our focus around experience. SAP is now taking on a, a vision of both employee experience and consumer experience, which really go together. And then product, obviously, is, is a key factor in, in creating those experiences. So the focus for 2019 for me has slightly changed. I'm more focused on what are people experiencing while they're using the product, creating the product, driving the market, trying to gain market share, etc. Experience is a big word right now for me. Absolutely. I think it is. It is in every industry. And Ellen, you've had 23 years of enterprise software and automotive experience. What's your favorite place? I know you've lived in Manhattan. You've lived in Detroit most of your professional life. Uh, What's your favorite place to be? Is it still Detroit? It is. More and more so. I, I think maybe you have to get old to realize like how special something is. But I, I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, come on. We don't talk about that. Thank you very much, Ellen. We're going to take a quick break. We have an extraordinary panel. We're talking about a very interesting but perhaps a very controversial topic, make versus buy automotive software development. Should it originate with the automakers, the OEMs, the Detroit-based, Stuttgart-based companies, or should it move over to Silicon? Valley and other centers of, uh, shall we say, software innovation and software creativity, or should there be a blend somewhere in the middle with everybody drinking a celebratory bullet bourbon when they shake hands and say, we did it together? We're going to find out. My special panelists are Ashok Shivanand from Integral 
Paul Eichenberg at Paul Eichenberg Strategic Consulting and Ellen Sasson, S-A-S-S-O-N at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We'll be right back. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. You know the drill by now. Aaron out. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. SAP is excited to be a co-innovator with the automotive industry as we help automotive and related companies digitally transform their entire industry and disrupt their existing business models. The Future of Cars with Game Changers brings you insights from the people in the driver's seat who are making this happen. We'll delve into industry challenges and solutions that support ecosystem industries, all to help you succeed in transforming your business and business networks for success in the new digital networked age. Tune in to the Business Channel to hear today's top technology and business strategy thought leaders share expert insights on how the automotive industry is shaping the future of change for all of us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to the future of cars with Game Changers. Yes, indeed. We're talking about make versus buy. Should the automotive industry giants or even newcomers work on automotive software, develop it on their own, or should they turn to the gurus in Silicon Valley or a meeting of the minds somewhere in the middle? My three special experts today are Ashok Shivanand at Integral, Paul Eichenberg at Eichenberg Strategic Consulting, and Ellen Sasson at SAP, and I'm still Bonnie D. Graham. We're going to look at some notes here that Ashok sent me before the show. Let me read a little bit and then Ashok will kick off our roundtable. So Ashok says, quote the following, the automotive industry has been optimized for predictability. That's provocative, Ashok. Why don't you tell us more, please? Sure thing. I think um, it's not just, it's, it's kind of any industry that's been around for so long. You kind of fail through your S-curve where you figure out whether, you know, a new way can work. And then once you find something that works, you kind of scale it. And then ultimately you try and kind of optimize it for profitability and go after the bottom line. And in that final stage, um, which is, uh, which is where, you know, most manufacturers are in um, when you're making, when you're making products that are high volume, you want to really minimize the variance and variability. And, you know, that's when the Six Sigma experts come in and you want to really make that process very predictable because there's a global supply, supply chain that's expecting things to show up at a certain time, right? Um, and I think that's, the industry's done really well, frankly, at that. Um, I think the, the, thing that some folks may or may not realize is that when you're at the beginning of that curve, um, kind of when you're in this disruptive state where everything's changing, um, you need to change your mindset in terms of not worrying about the predictability, not worrying as much about the bottom line just as yet, and starting from scratch in terms of, hey, does this even, does this even work? Does this new recipe, does this even taste good? Uh, forget about mm-hmm. how many I can make and how cheaply I can make it right now. Um, mm-hmm. So that area of, like, does it work or does it not work, 
does this problem really exist? Who is it for? What's it for? Those are some of the questions that um, you're kind of asking yourself in, a, in, an, in the early stage or the genesis of a new industry like mobility. And you need to change your mindset. You need to really optimize it for uncertainty now and recognize that, hey, there's a lot of unknowns and we're going to lean into it. We're going to go try new things. We're going to recognize that it's okay to fail. So we're going to place smaller bets. We're going to move fast. Um, so that's really where I think, um, you know, it's not about geography, about whether it's overseas or Silicon Valley or, or the Motor City. I think it's really about kind of can you change your mindset to optimize for uncertainty now um, or, or are you still going to stay kind of wanting that predictability? That's the scary part, Ashok. That is definitely the scary part, optimizing for uncertainty. Let's see what Paul Eichenberg has to say. Paul, what's your observation? Agree or disagree with Ashok, please? Uh, I agree with him completely. Uh, as mm. a matter of fact, uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, I was with a client, and uh, we were we were going through a, a strategy process and talking about other industries and other technology areas for this uh, company to expand in. And the one thing that everybody loves about automotive is just the predictability. You know, the industry is going to make X number of vehicles. There's X number of these components um, for, uh, you know, a conservative uh, organization. That type of uh, certainty is really important. However, um, as you start to introduce all these technology disruptions, uh, you have a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Um, for instance, one, one example I would use is probably 18 months ago, everybody thought uh, level uh, four vehicles were, you know, sort of the end game when it comes to uh, the passenger car market. Today, what you're seeing is, uh, um, you know, a completely different view. Uh, so for organizations that are in the process of developing uh, ADAS and autonomous driving sensors and software and systems. There's just a great amount of uncertainty as far as how these technologies will be adopted and ultimately um, what are going to be the strategies of the OEMs. Uh, mm-hmm. So we are moving into a great amount of uncertainty as an industry. And this is why going back to, uh, you know, the statement or the uh, the quote that I used from Teddy uh, Roosevelt is so critical is in that type of environment, um, the bold will survive. Um, you've got to be willing to take risk in this type of environment. And that's one of the things I talk to my clients about um, is be smart with your investments, uh, but at the same time, don't shy away from, um, you know, uh, taking on that uncertainty because it's that bold that will win. Thank you very much. Very, very interesting approach. Um, I, I really appreciate your words on that. Ellen, agree or disagree? I, I think we all know that the industry is in flux, but what do you think about the embracing of this change and optimizing for uncertainty? I've never heard that before. I, I think it's a great idea. I, I, I disagree slightly. I, I think there's going to mm-hmm. be two camps. I really think there's going to be a predictable camp, which has more to do with fleets and automation and you know, predictable schedules of maintenance and, you know, running a, running a fleet on a certain fixed route is, is going to be more manageable and the unpredictable and Ashok, I read some of your statements and I agreed with it. 
The unpredictable is the consumer and the behavior of people, which is why the retail side, the dealers, you know, that side of our business is really uncertain. I think there will be a predictable creation of fleets and fleet management, and, and that'll be more like clockwork. So I, I, I think there's a bifurcation of, of the industry, ultimately. Thank you very much, Ellen. Ashok, anything you want to say to your co-panelists on their comments on your topic before I move on, please? I'm good on this end. Okay, good. Good topic. Thank you for launching our our formal roundtable, if you will. Paul Eichenberg, I'm looking at your notes here, and here's a very interesting. Let's get down to some numbers here. We love facts and figures here on Game Changers Radio. Paul told me the following. I'm going to read a little bit. He said, uh, okay, he says, lines of code. The automobile is no longer just a car, but a sophisticated computer on wheels. Today's premium vehicle has 125 million lines of code. The comparison is impressive when you consider that an F-22 fighter jet is less than 2 million, a Boeing 787 is 15 million, and even Facebook is only 62 million. Paul, help us out with these, please. Yes, so what this does is this just gives you an idea of how sophisticated the automobile is, you know, becoming when when you think about software. I mean, when you think of Facebook being 62 million, I would tell you the average infotainment uh, system in an automobile today is about 50 million lines of code. And I think it's even more staggering when you think about, well, where are vehicles going? Uh, vehicles in the future uh, that are fully electrified or battery electric vehicles. Uh, when you think about connectivity and you think of these higher level uh, autonomous driving systems like you may have in a level three vehicle, those vehicles will have over 300 million lines of code. And the interesting thing about those vehicles um, is at, at that point in time, they will be generating a tremendous amount of data. And I think the data that's generated from that is, has a wealth of uses um, that will create ultimately new business models within the automotive industry. So, I think this is just a really interesting time, but these figures give individuals a perspective of the complexity and the change to the automobile that's coming, um, and that these are very sophisticated computers on wheels today, and will only get to be much more complex. Thank you. Absolutely fascinating. I love the numbers because it really helps to crystallize in our minds, Paul, mine and and the listeners, what in the world we're talking about. Ellen, chime in here, please. What do you think? Are these as startling as I think they are? Well, I I think that the numbers around software development and and data and and the new business models is is positive in in the sense. um, I was on a call just prior to this one. We were talking about workforces of the future. The prediction is there's going to be more jobs, not less jobs. We're going to have for every one job that goes away today, it's replaced by 1.3 new jobs in a new world, right, of artificial intelligence, data mining, data management. So that to me is kind of the positive side of all this is as the vehicles get more complex, as our, as our lifestyles get more mobile, like Ashok was talking about, people being able to go and do and be things they never were before, it really creates opportunity for, for all of us, and, and it's back to change, back to David Bowie, the ability to change with that and develop new skills and find a new place for yourself or a new business in this changing ecosystem based on software is pretty exciting. So that's my it's, comment. 
Very exciting. Thank you. Ashok, let's go around the table to you. Are you are you startled by these numbers? What do they mean to you? Not really. I think they've been around for a bit. And, uh, you know, the automakers started by kind of have started talking about the lines of code in their vehicle to showcase that the vehicle is technology for, I want to say probably 2015 at CES is when I first heard about it. Um, I think maybe a lesser known fact um, outside of a um, of, of the software industry is that more lines of code is usually not better. Um, and uh, the other thing to take into consideration is that cars have, you know, different types of systems that tend to need more code than um, than than Facebook that sits primarily in the cloud. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's uh, it's still you know the the part of Facebook that isn't as obvious is the fact that they're continually watching and testing different versions of their software. There's hundreds of check-ins of new versions of software or or Facebook that are launched every day. Uh, And we don't notice all the changes, um, but typically um, they are, they've got a hypothesis like we did in grade six chemistry around what they're expecting to see in, in change of behavior from, from their users. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of those changes are ultimately driven by how we respond to how we're using their app. So um, I think it's that human centricity or the curiosity and experimentation are things that uh, should not be left off. Um, and as much as kind of um, the number of lines of code in a vehicle is definitely testament to kind of it being a software industry uh, now versus a mechanical engineer's industry. Thank you. Interesting. Paul, this was your topic. Comments on what your colleagues on the panel just shared. You know, I, I, I agree with Ellen. What she's talking about is uh, this, this change does create tremendous opportunity uh, within our industry. And I think uh, whether it's uh, software engineers, it's people that are responsible for data analytics, uh, there's tremendous opportunities and there's new business models that will be created as a result of um, this change in the automobile. So uh, agree completely with uh, what, what's being discussed here. Paul, before I move on to a topic, Kramil, and I'm glad you brought up the evolution of the business models because I was just looking at your notes, and I'd love for you to talk about the four monetizing hardware, contracted services, software license, and subscription. So, Ellen, yep. give, me, yep. give me a moment here because I'd like Paul to talk yeah. about these. I think it's important. Paul, tell us how you yeah. came up with these four, please. Yeah, so I think there's really four emerging uh, business models uh, in the software space around the automobile. And this is how the OEMs are buying software uh, today from, from selected uh, suppliers. First is uh, you monetize the hardware. This is uh, where the supplier gives away the software and they monetize the hardware. So this is a camera supplier or a chip supplier like Mobileye for, um, for vision systems. You have uh, the opportunity to contract, uh, um, contract services. So this is where somebody supplies IP software um, uh, in order to get a service contract. This is companies like Electrobit or KPIT uh, in the industry. You have software licenses where uh, they supply customer with IP, um, or individual supplier modules, and this is somebody uh, like a Google or an Apple uh, Play, uh, these type of systems. And then the last ones are subscriptions. Uh, 
And uh, this is where they supply the customer with software um, that is being constantly updated. And this is what you see in the subscriptions uh, for real-time map data um, so that you understand where construction zones are, where there's traffic challenges, et cetera. This is the subscription model. And these are the four basic business models that are starting to uh, emerge in the automotive uh, supplier space. Thank you very much. I wanted to cover that. Ellen, uh, why don't we get you to talk about this since this is a, a new piece of our conversation here. Agree or disagree with these business models? And we'll go around the table on this. With Paul's business models that he just presented, yes. I agree. It also makes me think, if I can just get one sentence in, yeah. um, I've seen these skateboard models where the hardware, the battery, the electric, everything is underneath, and, and that's the part that changes. And then the top part is modular, and you can make, this is for autonomous vehicles, you can make that top part of the vehicle you know, anything you want it to be. It can be a kitchen. It can be a healthcare operation. It, that's the mobility of the future is that the hardware is underneath. It, it, it can be changed out, kind of like cell phone batteries, I guess you would say. And the upper part is the, the utility, the use of whatever that vehicle is supposed to do. So, so the skateboard is going to be is already a big thing in this mobility world. Ellen, thank you. And, of course, you have more than just a moment to get in. But while we're on this business model, I want to bring in one more comment. Ashok, I'll get your, your comments in a moment. But, Ellen, something in your notes I think is a good place to insert now. I think, I think. You say brand identity in automotive can be born in months, not years, not decade. In months, automakers need to look at fashion, music, and art trends to see the pace of change. Can you bring that into this discussion of business models changing, Ellen? I think that goes very well together. It just everything moves so fast and so viral, and I, I hate to bring up something sad and tragic, but that Boeing 737 Max, which, oh. you know, it's all over the news, that's a lot of software. So, so the speed at which you can make or break even a new brand, a brand new, you know, bullet bourbon, <laughs> It's so viral, so fast, the way you can capture people's attention. So I, I think that that's, that's, you know, a tricky business, and, and we need really kind of intelligent product development, marketing to, to, to use it, to use the power of all that, of the speed of marketing. So Thank that, you very much. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Ashok, you have some options here. You can talk about the speed of change and brand identity and or the business models. I think they go well together. Ashok, join us, please. Sure thing. I think, um, yeah, the, the, the speed of change and kind of the, the business models there um, are, are definitely interesting topics. Um, and, Paul, what I've seen is, you know, we've spoken to a couple of the traditional hardware uh, vendors that kind of, sell the hardware one at a time and give the software away for free um, in terms of ways that they can productize just the software. So if you have an algorithm or something that sits on your piece of hardware and maybe tomorrow you can sell that algorithm on itself uh, to other hardware manufacturers that can then bundle that up and sell it, um, that's a much more cost-effective, higher-margin way of being able to sell it because you don't have to make the physical component anymore. You're reusing the software course, you have to rewrite that software to be more generic and reusable, but I think that's a trend that we're definitely seeing 
where where hardware manufacturers are looking to abstract the software from the hardware and take advantage of some some efficiencies of scale on the software side to increase the profitability. The nice thing about that is that if you are able to switch over, it's a hard chasm to cross. But if you're able to switch over, um, the the cost of change kind of goes down, and you're able mm-hmm. to you're able to kind of make new versions of it a lot easier and and kind of cater to emerging customer needs a lot faster compared to having to go back and redesign software and go through, or hardware rather, and go through the typical cycle time, especially if the hardware is manufactured overseas. Um, so I think that's, that's something that I've noticed uh, and something I think for hardware manufacturers who have software components to what they sell to really think about. Um, and in terms of brand identity, I think, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, the, the Internet, uh, social media have made it, um, a lot more accessible for new companies to get in front of the consumer uh, and establish themselves. I think the fun- fundamentals still hold true, though, where, you know, you, you need to not only convince someone to try it once, but you need to convince them to come back and really enjoy your service in terms of, um, in terms of really build, building that brand. Um, and that's no different than the first time you buy a Ford and then you want to come buy it, come back and buy a Ford again because you loved it so much. I think mm-hmm. those things haven't changed. I think it's easier to, for people to get out of um, uh, a sales engagement now in the subscription world, kind of combining the two points, where if I'm only buying something on a monthly basis, if I'm only licensing your algorithm from you and someone comes up with a better algorithm, it's easier for me to, as the customer, switch from vendor A to vendor B so I think that the industry in general will, will kind of improve because the vendors will now be held to a higher standard of innovation because they know that someone else is chomping at the bits there. Thank you very much, Ashok. I have to tell you, I, we weren't quite into our crystal ball predictions round, but now we're in the middle of it. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to give you, I think you gave us some predictions. I'm going to circle around and have Paul give us his 60 seconds, and Ellen and we'll go back around and give you a little chance to, to reset there, Ashok, and you'll be the final uh, predictor. So, Paul Eichenberg, 60 seconds. What do you predict will change Big time between now and 2025 on this topic of make versus buy automotive software. Paul, go. Well, I think uh, it's been a theme of what we've been talking about here today. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty as far as uh, uh, this whole software space. And what I would say is everybody sees vehicle software is very critical and becomes a main differentiator, not only for the OEMs, but the suppliers. And I think everybody wants to be able to capture that value. The biggest challenge that you have is attracting the talent to an organization to be able to supply those services in a timely manner, um, you know, uh, versus the industry poll. So I think what you're going to see, the prediction right now would be um, just plan on more uncertainty. Uh, this supply mm-hmm. chain will not get sorted out in the next uh, five to seven years. And again, those that are aggressive, those are, who are bold, uh, will start to emerge as leaders uh, in that time frame. Um, but as far as clear set um, uh, predictions, very difficult uh, to say at this point in time, other than there will be some uh, leaders to emerge. Thank you very much. Ellen Sasson, you're up 60 seconds. What do you see in the crystal ball? 
the leaders are going to be the ones, A, that partner best and give their employees, I think, great opportunities to work with OEMs, with tier ones, with, with high tech companies. So it's the, it's the collaboration of a lot of players that I think makes for exciting work. And I think the best organizations are going to have leadership that, that truly can attract and retain talent because they understand them, which are millennials. Thank you very much. There's another topic for another show. Appreciate that. Ashok Shivanand, I'm going to let you have the last. I give you 90 seconds, actually, because your colleagues on the panel were so concise. So go ahead, Ashok, 90 seconds. What do you see in the crystal ball? Um, I think, you know, one of what I see is that, you know, self-driving vehicles are going to take a lot longer to come to market and where the driver is actually taken out of the equation than the press and the media and the announcements have us believe. Um, I don't believe we'll, we'll be there by 2025 um, if I had to place my bets. I think the place that we will see it, though, within that time frame are kind of sh- shorter distance, slower, like 25 to 35 mile an hour shuttles that get us from point A to point B within a closed environment like a college campus or a business campus or a retirement community. Some of the companies mm-hmm. like May Mobility that's based out of Michigan and Voyage that's doing it in the retirement communities are probably leading the charge on that. I think that's, um, that's where I'm going to place my bets here. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. I want to thank the three panelists. And big shout-out again to Miranda LeBate for putting together this wonderful, wonderful panel. Really appreciate your work, Miranda. Ellen, you also, and Judy Cubis for sponsoring the series. And we're just about out of time, so I'm just going to do my shout-out about 30 seconds early. I want to thank our global listeners for sticking with us here on Game Changers Radio. Always a pleasure and a privilege to bring you interesting topics, and this certainly is right at the top of the list. So a shout-out as well to Aaron Keller, our engineer extraordinaire at the Business Channel on World Talk Radio, for getting us on the air and keeping us there. Thank you, Aaron, for your work. So here we go. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and thank you for listening. And here especially, I love this call to action. I do it on all of our Game Changer series, but it really works here. Ashok and Paul haven't heard it, so here we go. Fasten your seatbelt. Aha! Uh-huh. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Just like Ashok Shivanand at Integral. Just like Paul Eichenberg at Paul Eichenberg Strategic Consulting. And just like Ellen Sasson at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Have a great day. We'll be back at 12 noon Eastern right here on the Business Channel today. I think it's March 1 to 11, 12. 11, 12, that's right. 12, 2019. The year is flying by. It's driving by, actually, with a new episode of Financial Excellence with Game Changers looking at tax reporting software. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to The Future of Cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.